you have one with you, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, been working our way through verse by verse, section by section. And today's message is all about fear. Anybody here afraid of anything? I know I am, right? And I did some research this week, which is never a good thing, on a couple fears that I think get a little bit of a bad rap. Let me share with you four unique and fascinating phobias. And while each of these may seem somewhat irrational on the surface, what's interesting is when you, get, when you dig a little deeper, you find that there actually really is something to be afraid of behind these phobias. Look at the first one here. This is, let's, let's see, I have how to pronounce this. Let me see. Archibuterophobia. That's fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I did some research, the Latin, the Latin breaks down as literally peanut butter fear, right? And the fear behind this, though, isn't necessarily about the peanut butter. I read a little bit, it can actually develop because of a choking incident involving someone putting too much peanut butter back in their mouth. So even behind what seems to be irrational is a real rational fear. How about this one? This is nomophobia, fear of being without your phone. I can... <laughs> The teenagers aren't here, at least many of them, right? So we understand what this might mean. But this is, this is interesting. One study showed that half of adult men and women experience anxiety around their cell phones. And so I don't think it's necessarily about the fear maybe of the phone but, or not having the phone, but the ability to not be in contact with people when things are in trouble, when, when things are going wrong, right? Let's look at this one. Hippopotamstrosuscure, right? Phobia, the fear of long words, right? This is a real thing. And friends, I thought this was the funniest thing that I researched all week, but it can actually stem from an anxiety around reading big words aloud. So when you're young, right, you can, it's the fear of embarrassment around trying to say long words like your pastor often does and messing them up in front of a group of people. And finally, have you ever experienced this phobophobia? It's the fear of phobias. It's literally, one, one article said, it's a, flea, it's a free-floating anxiety where a person spirals into a circle of anxiety due to fearing fear itself. <laughs> In that respect, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what this taught, taught us today is there is much to be afraid of in this world, but we've got to make sure our fear is properly placed. The fear doesn't need to be in the peanut butter, but we should probably have a healthy fear of choking, right? In fact, fear of properly placed can be a good thing. Fear of a car crash will keep you from texting and driving, won't it? Fear of strangers will help you to keep a close eye on your child when they're just sort of out wandering, right? The problem isn't fear, but misplaced fear. And even the Bible speaks about how the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that God is to be feared. And for Christians, this doesn't mean we need to be afraid of him like the boogeyman, but we should have a certain level of reverence, of respect, and of care for God. The same way when you were up on a t if you were up on a tightrope, you would have lots of care and concern and reverence so you don't fall to one side or the other, right? Or like we would have with a fire. We want to be careful that the fire that we set doesn't get out of control. So not all fear is bad. The problem is misplaced fear. And Exodus chapter 14 is a story about fear. And the fear of God's people moves from the wrong place to the right place. Fear never leaves them, but over five steps throughout this story, they move from fear to fear. Look with me, Exodus chapter 14, and we'll read the whole chapter together. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Saphon. You, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. 
and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this you have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hararoth in front of Baal-Saphon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, for which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them to their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord flew through the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters were returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. This is the moment, right? The climax, the center of the Exodus story. Even folks who maybe don't have a super in-depth knowledge of the Bible, they've seen the movie about this one, right? 
the parting of the Red Sea, the dramatic music swells, the waters part by the power of God. And then the waters enclose again on the Egyptians as they follow the people of God walking through on dry ground and arriving on the other side of the Red Sea. And this story really becomes definitional for the rest of the Bible. It becomes repeated over and over and over again. The language used is very similar to how the flood back in Genesis 8 spoke, but repeated in miniature. The people of God passing through waters of judgment while the enemies of God are drowned. Isaiah uses this language to prophesy about the Messiah coming and performing a second and greater exodus. Paul even comments on the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he makes an application to us. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, he says the Red Sea is meant to be a picture of baptism, that we as Christians, when we trust in Jesus and when we're baptized, we symbolically pass through the waters of judgment to enter into new life, just like the children of Israel did. The Red Sea becomes definitional to the whole storyline of the Bible, and it's meant to be formational for the people of God. And we're also meant to draw lessons from this story and from the people in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10 continues, verse 6, to say this. He goes on and talks about several events that happen in Exodus and Numbers and says this, Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, God has given us this so that we would both not emulate certain things in it. We would take a lesson to the negative, don't be this way. But Romans 15, 4 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So he says, hey, some of this is here for you to learn what not to do, And some of this is here for you to learn what to do through the encouragement and the strengthening of the Scripture and ultimately to give you hope. So throughout this, we're going to see that Egypt and Israel are examples for us, both so that we won't desire evil and that we might endure and have encouragement and hope. And the lesson to us of Exodus 14 is all about fear. Taking them, funny enough, people often preach this text and talk about from fear to faith, but the people still have fear at the end of the story. He actually takes them from fear to fear, from fear of man to fear of God in five steps. So let's look at the passage. Let's look at step one. The passage begins and we see the reason for fear, the reason for for fear. Remember, the people have been set free from slavery in Egypt. There's been dramatic signs and wonders, ten plagues, including the death of the firstborn throughout the land. God is now leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and they are headed out into the wilderness. And by the plan of God, Pharaoh changes his mind His heart's hardened, and he pursues after the people. Pharaoh just didn't have enough, did he? So he loads up his army, and he's going to go full speed after them. They begin to realize that, man, all of our slave labor is gone. We're actually going to have to make some changes here. So they try to go after him. And friends, we should take note of Pharaoh's stubbornness and forgetfulness. Remember, the plague of the firstborn had happened not long before this, and it's likely that, friends, that even the funerals for all those that died in that plague aren't even finished, and Pharaoh's like, I want another go. (laughs) Pharaoh simply can't lose when it's clear he's lost. You ever met somebody like that who just will not lose? He's not going to let these people leave, though he was just begging them to leave not that long ago. Pharaoh remains, even after the plagues, hardened in his heart and stubborn in his rebellion. Friends, we need to note to not be like Pharaoh. (laughs) To be sensitive, God is often shouting in our life. And we need to be sensitive to that. 
and to his judgment and to our own hearts. Take the lesson from Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart in stubbornness. Pharaoh's had multiple chances to repent, 10 or more chances to turn around. Don't let it pass you by. Turn to the Lord while there is time. Pharaoh was stubborn and forgetful, and he pursued after the nation. And chapter 14, verses 8 to 10, really provide a great summary of what happened here. Look at that. Verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and all his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi Harioth in front of Baal Zephon. While Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Do you see it? The people of Israel greatly feared the incoming army. They were overtaken, and the Egyptians drew near, and the people cry out to the Lord out of their fear of man. And at this point, they've done everything right. Friends, the armies of Egypt were right to be feared, and the people took their fear to the Lord. Let's remember that God often brings us to scary and seemingly impossible situations in order to get the glory out of it. He will put you in things you can't do so that he will do it and he will get the glory. That's what he's even saying is he's going to get the glory over Pharaoh and over Egypt. The nation had a reason to fear. We see second, notice the reaction to fear. Notice the reaction to fear. They began on the right note. They started crying out to the Lord. That's what they should have done. But then they start crying in a different way. Look at verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Look how quickly this prayer meeting turned into a complaint session. <laughs> you see that? They're crying out to the Lord. Then they're like, Moses, this is your fault. Did you bring us out here to die? We would have been better off enslaved in Egypt. It would have been better to have died as slaves than to die as free men. Friends, this is gaslighting all the way, right? The people weren't forced to go along with him. They're putting all the blame on Moses, and they were quick to forget God's mercy and saving power in the plagues and in the Passover. Fear had almost led them to forsake the Lord and his promise to them. And friends, we need to take note that we might not desire evil as they did. The people longed for familiar slavery rather than pursue new freedom. They would have rather went back into the same old cycle of slavery rather than pursue something new in front of them that, yes, probably looks scary and impossible. And how are we going to do this? You ever feel like that? You ever been scared of change because change is hard? You ever been prone to forget? You ever felt satisfied in the sin you were in and, and began to become comfortable in it? Laser focused on what's in front of us rather than the God who's above us? Friends, do we ever react the way the Egyptians do when things get hard? God, did you just bring me out here to kill me? This is taking so long. God often sets us in impossible situations in order to display that all things are possible with him. The text says that the people lifted their eyes and saw the army, but friends, they should have kept on lifting their eyes and looked to the God of heaven. Friends, the principle is clear. Change, redemption, salvation, whatever it is, is going to often be difficult. God will redeem you, bring you into new life, but there's going to come a time when you're going to come face to face with what he saved you out of, and you're going to be tempted to go back. 
If you've not been there yet, friends, let me mark it down. It's coming on your calendar somewhere. God's going to tempt you to go back into all that he brought you out of. And it may come at the moment of your greatest fear or your greatest weakness, even in the wilderness with an army at your back and a sea in front of you, and you don't got a boat and you can't swim. And you're like, how will I do this? There's going to come a time in your Christian life when you'll have to keep your eyes forward, trust God to make a way, and not look back. No matter how inviting turning back may be. Because slavery to sin doesn't always look like oppression to Egypt in the moment. It will often be very enticing to you. Come back. It's more comfortable. It's familiar. There's a routine. Don't don't pursue after something new. You don't know what's there. And at this moment, for the people of Israel, their old life looked at least a lot better than where they were. There was some certainty and some security. But friends, in, in this temptation, there is always a hook in the bait. All of us know if you want to get a fish, you've got to have some, some, something to allure them and then a hook to get them, right? And Satan's the same way. To tempt you to go back, he'll use anything to try to get you there just to get you in the hook. And we must be willing to see the past for what it is And to see that we have been set free so that we will not be caught in the hook of death and slavery within it. We can't react like the people in Israel here, whining and complaining, all because God said he was going to do this. And then he does it. And then they're upset that he did it. (laughs) God, you said you were going to set us free. Now you've set us free. Now I, I don't know if I want all of this. But Christians... We can take heart. We often think it's incredible that the people in Israel had a pillar in front of them, right? With the angel of the Lord in it. God was traveling ahead of them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But friends, we actually have something better. God isn't in front of us or behind us, friends, as a Christian. God's inside us. You have something the Israelites never had, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to enable you to stand firm on his promises and to pursue forward in faith. Friends, God has given you in the Spirit, with the Word, everything you need to know to continue forward in your faith. To know that you do not fight the fight of freedom alone. God fights with you. And that is actually where the passage turns from the reason to the reaction now to the response to fear, particularly God's response to their fear. And God speaks through Moses to encourage the people. And we just need to stop and note for a moment the grace of God. Friends, he's rescued these people and now they're just grumbling. You ever do something really good for somebody? Maybe you're taking them on a trip somewhere. You're taking the kids on a trip or you're doing this big thing and all they've done the whole way is just grumble and be unthankful for it. You ever been there? Friends, God's God's dealing with that now. They're in the back seat of the minivan crying and whining about how they're hungry for some nuggets. And I'm like, I just need a little further to go. He didn't throw in the towel on his complaining, contrary, and rebellious people. He spoke words of hope to encourage them in the journey forward and to keep them from going back. And here's what we need to recognize. We are often quick to say, I know I needed God to redeem me, to save me, to justify me. I needed him to make the first step, but I'm going to try to go the rest of the way in my own strength. We're quick to say that, aren't we? To think, oh, well, God saved me, but I got it the rest of the way. Friends, we need God for every step of our Christian life. God doesn't simply pull us up by the bootstraps so that we can walk the rest of the way alone. The gospel, the promises of God are not simply how you get saved. They're how you make progress in your faith. God is fighting for you and with you. Look how God responds, verse 13. I love that we read these on our way in as we were worshiping this morning because this really is the core of what we need to see in this passage. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord for which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. I love the opening command, fear not. (laughs) He says, hey, I know that this looks impossible. It looks hopeless. God is saying this isn't a wild phobia about peanut butter. This is a really scary situation you all are in. The greatest political superpower in the world in this day has the full weight of its military power pursuing this tiny ragtag Hebrew people on their way out. This is, if you were to, if they had news in that day, you'd be watching and they'd have the police chasing them, the military helicopters. I mean, we all know how it ends when there's a police chase with all that going on, right? And we're sitting there going, we know the end of the story. But what was about to happen would be a greater work of salvation than the Passover or the plagues. They were going to be set free from Egypt for good. The Lord would fight for them, but they needed to be quiet to trust his word through Moses. Sometimes God's best advice he can give us is to shut up. (laughs) To be quiet. And to let him do what he does. God's people needed to shut up, to be saved, to stop the complaints, and to trust the creator and the rescuer. And friends, this isn't just true for them. This is true for us. Then look what God continues to say through Moses. Verse 15. Look at this. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. First, just think for a moment. Moses is here in this. And Moses is probably sharing this plan with some other folks. Yeah, I'm going to hold up my hand, hold up my staff. That water is going to part. Who's going first? I'm not sure I'm the first one leading the pack, to be honest with you. I'd probably be like, I'm going to let Bubba go first. He's, he, Bubba, Bubba's brave. <laughs> let, let Bubba go, right? But notice also God's motivation, He's going to get glory over Pharaoh because the people ultimately feared Pharaoh more than they feared and trusted God. And God wanted to teach his people this that we see in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what God wanted to teach them. They feared this mighty military power more than the king of kings. So God was going to part the seas to get the glory over Pharaoh and to display his greatness. And that's exactly what he does. Passage continues, verse 19. Here's the moment. Look at this. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horses, and his horsemen. So here's what we see. The pillar moves from the front, leading them, now to the back, protecting them, right? God parts the sea, drove it back by creating a wall on the right and on the left side. Some people make a big deal out of the fact it says an east wind blew and they try to have some sort of scientific explanation for what happened. Friends, this was a miraculous work of God, right? This was a miraculous thing. God can use means and do what he wants, but I'm not going to try to explain exactly how all of this worked, right? And the people enter the water on dry ground, guarded by the angel of the Lord and the pillar of fire with the Egyptians in hot pursuit. Friends, notice that the Lord provided everything the people needed. 
They had nowhere to go in front of them because they had a a sea of water and they weren't going to begin to jump in and try to swim across. But God made a way. They were afraid of the army behind them, but God's now put protection for them there. God made a way. And verse 14 of, of chapter 14 really is the core message. It is a summary of God's responses to the people's complaints and reactions. Fear not. The Lord said, I will fight for you. You need only to be silent. And then my favorite part happens. The most ironic thing. I love when the Bible gives us a peek into the hearts of these Egyptians. As they begin to step into the water. Imagine, I I want to imagine being one of these Egyptians going, okay, they didn't train me at the Egyptian horseman school for what to do when this happens. But I'm going to walk on in. And then we see the reversal of fear. The reversal of fear. Look at twenty, verse 24. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. It's been a bit of a long journey, right? We saw it was night when all of this was going on. Now it's the morning watch, so it's around sunrise. The Egyptians have entered into the wall of water, and the Israelites are having no problem. They're just walking through, not having any issue, right? Moving along. But the chariots of the Egyptians are getting stuck in the mud. In addition, there's a giant cloud of pillar and fire in front of them. On top of everything they'd experienced, the ten plagues that had occurred And friends, now the Egyptians are the ones who were afraid. I think rightfully so. See the reversal. See the irony. God loves a good ironic plot twist. Now the Egyptians are forced into panic and saying, we need to flee before them for the Lord Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. They were in hot pursuit, friends. Now they're in hot retreats. This is the Lord getting glory over Pharaoh, just as he said. And even the Egyptian soldiers are able to put together in their head that they have lost this battle. (laughs) They're done, and they're recognizing that it's the Lord that fights against them, so they don't stand a chance. It's actually funny. The Egyptians fear the Lord before the Israelites ever begin to. (laughs) The Egyptians understand what all this means before the Israelites ever quite figured it out. They recognized that the God who these people serve is an all-consuming fire. All-powerful. They don't stand a chance. And the Egyptians recognized that they didn't simply need to have a fear or a reverence for the Lord. They needed to be afraid of the Lord. They'd abused his people They'd rejected his promise. There was no mercy and grace left for these people. They recognized the truth of Hebrews 10.31. Look at this. This is in the Bible. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God should have been their fear, not Pharaoh. God is displayed to be in control of the wind and the waves, not Pharaoh. And as the people of Israel arrive on the other side, Moses turns back toward the Egyptians as they're driving slowly through the mud, and God brings final judgment. Look at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The judgment of God falls on them and the waters close in as the people arrive on the other side. Friends, God had shown extravagant mercy to these Egyptian rulers. Think about it. He had given them ten chances to repent. 
plague after plague after plague after plague. Friends, God's patience may one day run out. They were drowned in the waters while the people of God arrived on the other side. And I do think there's another level of irony here because remember, back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Egyptian officials were drowning Hebrew children in the water. And now it's the Egyptian officials that are the ones being drowned in waters of judgment. God kept his promise, and the ones who they once feared, now were fearing and were no more. Friends, God fought for his people, and God always wins in a fight. And this is an important question to consider. Whose side are you on? (laughs) Because There's probably a moment where if you're walking with the Israelites, you're like, ah, I think I might want to go back. We look small, humble, weak. How are we going to do this? Yet they were the ones trusting in and fearing the Lord. Others of us might be on the side of the world. Friends, the, the, the people of Egypt had all the money and wealth and, friends, the opinions of others and all of these things. Whose side are we on? On the side of the Lord, fearing the Lord, or on the side of the world, fearing the opinions of others, going with the wicked, and fearing anything but God? The Bible is very clear that for those of us who stand against God and His Word and stand opposed, there is a sea of judgment that awaits. But the good news is that whatever team you may be on today, if you've been on the side of the world, there is still time to switch sides. (laughs) You have not stepped into the cloggy mud at the end of the journey. There is still time to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to find that in Him there is no condemnation. There is forgiveness full and free that God will embrace you, forgive your sins, give you freedom from sin's slavery, and adopt you into His family and bring you on a journey toward greater, toward a greater promised land. Remember, we read last week that there were many Egyptians who went along with Israel, right? There were several who went along with them and experienced the salvation and the promise. And that can be true of you as well. Consider the Apostle Paul murdering Christians, but God just gets a hold of him on the Damascus Road and turns him from from someone martyring Christians into a martyr for Christ and a missionary on behalf of his cause. Friend, whatever side you may be on today, God is inviting you to get on the caravan with the family (laughs) and to join and to come through faith in Jesus Christ. We've seen the reason for their fear, the reaction initially to their fear, the response from God, The reversal. Now, the section closes with a summary, and we see the redirection of fear. The redirection of fear. God brought them from fear to faith, yes, but also from fear to fear. Look at verse 30. Look how it ends. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. You see the connection between faith and fear there? There's oftentimes preachers will use cliches a lot. You'll come to find that out. And that's one of the cliches. Preachers often put fear and faith against each other. But there is a sort of fear that goes right along with faith. The people feared the Lord, and thus they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Because fear and faith are not opposed when the fear is redirected toward the true object of faith. In other words, when reverence and reliance meet, when transcendence and trust kiss. Let me show you this in a few other passages. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. He says, in order to begin to believe and to do God's word, fear and reverence have to be at the start of it. You'll never obey what you don't respect. 
Proverbs chapter 2. Look at this. Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and you'll find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Again, notice the connection. You'll never have knowledge of God without having fear of God. Because our relationship with God is not like the relationship we have with others. Let me tell you something that grinds my preacher gears a little bit. And I know what people mean when they say it, but the idea to say that, well, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I understand what people mean when they say that, but in our days, people hear relationships as easy, low commitment, and I can just get out whenever I'm not into it anymore. (laughs) Friends, that's not what God calls us to. God doesn't call us to sort of the the lazy sort of relationships that people have with us. That isn't how it works. He is the one with all power, all authority, all grace, all mercy. And all we bring to the table is our sin and need of redemption. Yet he loves and saves us and calls us into relationship anyway. And this should produce a level of fear and reverence in us. Because God has displayed a wisdom and a knowledge far beyond our own. God and us are not equals in the relationship. Uh, He is not our homeboy. He is not sort of an an equal to us as we would have a human best friend. There's got to be some respect, some reverence, some fear. Psalm 19, as it's exalting the word of God. Look what it says about God's word. I love this. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. See, to have a fear of God does not necessarily mean to be afraid of God. There are those who need to be afraid of God, and it's if you're outside of Jesus Christ and your sins are not forgiven, if you're barrowing like the Egyptians were toward judgment day, there is much to be afraid of. But for those of us who have had our sins forgiven, who are walking with God by faith through his servant, Jesus Christ, for those of us who've been adopted into his family as his sons and daughters, we don't need to be afraid, but we do need to fear. Think about it. Fire needs to come with both respect and reverence because ultimately, if it gets out of control, it is far more powerful and mighty than you. (laughs) And this fear encourages us to place our faith in the God who speaks and saves. In fact, I believe that a true fear of God is the only way that we will cling more to God's word. Because we will never receive from someone we do not revere. We will never trust someone who we do not see to be trustworthy and transcendent. We believe the word of the one who is the word himself. And without fear, we can never do that. A fear of God is essential to faith in God. Friends, who do you fear? Or if you want to put it another way, in whom do you trust? Because what we give our trust to is ultimately where our reverence lies. For some of us, we've got all of our chips in on the government. And friends, we think that we're going to trust in them to fix everything. And that's why we get so afraid when maybe election day doesn't go the way that we want. Friends, let me, let me say, we're, we put a lot of faith in them to solve our problems, don't we? And it just tosses us into fear. Or think about, for a lot of us, our ultimate trust is in our bottom line. Moving up the company, earning more money, getting ready to go. And friends, when, when, the, when the market goes like this, there's lots of fear, isn't there? Because that's ultimately where our trust is. For others, maybe our greater, greatest fear and reverence is more toward ourself and toward our reputation. And thus, we're afraid for anybody to not dislike us a little bit. Remember, the Israelites would have been the despised and lowly, and nobody would have ever thought that Anything good would have been on their side, and yet they won in the battle. (laughs) 
we think of ourselves as number one, and our greatest fear is FOMO. You know what FOMO is? The fear of missing out. So we just want to enjoy every possible pleasure while we can. But the only one deserving of our ultimate fear, and that's our ultimate faith, is the one who the winds and the waves obey. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus and his disciples. And one evening, they go out and they come to a body of water and they get in a boat and they travel to the other side of the water. And they're crossing and a windstorm erupts and winds breaking or breaking in over the boat, right? And while this is happening, Jesus is sleeping on the boat. <laughs> Jesus is just napping while the boat's going everywhere, there's water coming in. And the disciples awaken Jesus and they ask a question. Look at this. This is Mark 4, 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the one they believe to be the master, the Messiah, the blessed one, the ruler over all things. And yet they come more afraid of the storm than afraid of him, and, and then having fear of him and say, do you not even care? What a lack of reverence and fear. And Jesus awakes, rebukes the storm, says, peace be still in the wind and the waves calm. And Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And this is an incredible response of his disciples. Mark 4, 41, look at this. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There is no faith without fear. There is no life of faith without temptations toward misdirected fear. And there is no progress in the life of faith without a proper fear of God. And so in this world, there is much to be afraid of. And will we respond like the Israelites with complaint and groaning? Or will we trust the word of God? In light of your fear, who will you live for? Because there is a comfort that comes with slavery to sin, but there is also eternal pleasures that come in service to our king. Who will we serve? There is a wicked master like Pharaoh that led his loyal servants right to the bottom of the sea. And then there's a righteous Lord who brought his people safely to the other side. Will we marvel with great fear in light of the Red Sea and in light of our Savior in the boat, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey him? And will we put our faith and our fear where it belongs? Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now confessing that you are worthy of our fear. We know that if we're in your son Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of you, but that we have all the more reason because of your incredible grace and mercy toward us to have a reverence and an awe for all that you've done. And Lord, I pray that we would take our fear away from the armies that might rage toward us or even the sea that's in front of us and place our faith and our fear this moment in you. I pray right now that there may be some today here who've never placed their faith and their hope in you. And Lord, they're following the path of Pharaoh and his armies right toward the sea of judgment. And I pray that right now you would change their mind. Give them faith to turn and to trust in you, the one who's died for our sins and who's risen again from the dead, that we might have everlasting life and journey toward the promised land together. And I pray for those of us who are your people. Lord, you would help us in this world of temptations. Lord, to see your grace bringing us safe thus far and that it's your grace that will lead us home. Help us to trust you and have your way in these next moments as we respond, whether we need to come forward and pray, whether we need to make commitments before you and others here, whatever it is, have your way among us. And we ask
ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.